Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name's Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at Link Squares, and with me today, I have Laura Frederick, who is the founder at How to Contract. Uh, Laura, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And as always, we have Alyssa Verzino with us. Hi. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you. And um, so, yeah, let's let's get right into it. So uh, as a matter of course, I always ask the first question, what's your pre-flight ritual? I think I'd say the number one pre-flight ritual is to make sure I have my phone battery available and fully charged because I've been there too many times where it runs out mid-flight and it's got everything in the world on it. And if I don't have my phone, I'm out of luck. So I think that's my number one ritual. I've definitely had a time or two where I've been sitting next to an outlet in an airport after my flight has landed because I have no way to get an Uber, no way to figure out if I had reserved a car, no no idea what the confirmation number is or anything about it. <laughs> it happens. Let's do a quick uh, quick bio. would love to learn a little bit more about about your career, what brought you into into practicing law and sort of how your career has taken you. Yeah, so I was not one of those kids who said, I want to be a lawyer when I grow up. I actually, I I never met a lawyer before I got to be, actually, I think before I went to law school. Um, So I grew up just wanting to do something international, do something exciting, and went to college studying international economics. And, you know, to me, lawyers were the smart ones. I wasn't that you know, you had to be really, really smart to be a lawyer. And then I saw all my other classmates and friends talking about law school. And I was like, well, I'm as smart as they are. And <laughs> so eventually I went and really wanted to do international uh, business. And so eventually found my way there and do it in the con- did a lot of it in the context of commercial contracts, which is buying, selling and licensing stuff. So did that. I ended up uh, working in law firms for about nine years, including uh, Big Law at Morrison Forster, and then went in-house for about 14 years, mostly energy-related companies, uh, with the last one being Tesla. And then I opened my own law firm um, in 2019 and, you know, continued the practice then. And how did you find the transition from, uh, from MoFo going in-house? It was crazy. First of all, was I mean, obviously the pay cut is tremendous. At the time, this was back in the year 2000, and I took a 45% pay cut when I went in-house. And But it was the best thing I did because my standard of living, because I had so much free time, um, it actually ended up very similar to what I had at MoFo. Because at MoFo, I had to, you know, you spend all your money on conveniences and things to make you feel good because you're working so much. But once I moved to a nine to five job, it was like, I don't need to do that anymore. So um, that was a big adjustment. And then the work was so different where I was at MoFo, it was still kind of in that dot-com boom days of the turn of the century. And, you know, it was, if a client reached out, it was next day. If you were lucky, you'd get two days to turn a contract 
and I get to the um, company and it was a big energy company with a utility and generation and everything. And I remember asking when I started, how long do I have to turn contracts reviews? And they're like, well, it would be really, really great if you could go quickly within like two weeks. And I was like, oh my God. This is amazing. So that was one of my favorite. And then not having a cell phone for the first two years I was in the house was incredible. If you couldn't, if I wasn't sitting at my desk, you had to leave a note, send me an email. I'll get to it when I see you. So those are my favorite things. How did you find the learning curve to be and how big was the legal team that you stepped into? So for me, I was doing tech transactions as in law firms. So um, I moved in-house to do mainly supply chain and commercial, at least to start. So the learning curve wasn't too bad because I tended to be the one at MoFo who handled the people who didn't have an in-house counsel. So I was used to working directly with the business because I love doing small day-to-day deals. That was my favorite. And so I I like working with business people. I mean, lawyers are good too, but there's a different feeling to business people. And uh, so I think the transition that way wasn't that big of a deal. But then about a year and a half in, um, this was, a, as I said, diversified energy company. It was 2006, seven. And we didn't, I had to take over suddenly when my boss left, all of the energy and financial trading and marketing of derivative contracts and billion dollar deals with Lehman Brothers and, you know, all of the big guys. And so I was doing that. That was a huge learning curve and did that through the 2008 meltdown, uh, trying to figure out Lehman's going to declare bankruptcy. What's our status? You know, it was uh, right. definitely a, a learning experience, to say the least. I was just getting out of law school right at that time. I worked in as an underwriter for residential mortgages. Oh, okay. So you were in that. Yeah, that was my world for a little while. Yeah. And so it was pretty interesting to, I I think I was doing that from like, I don't know, maybe 2001 or 2002 through 2004 or five. And it was definitely an interesting culmination of events. Oh my um, God. (laughs) Well, and the scariest moment was because we had, it was an electric utility outside Philadelphia. Um, It had basically Western or Eastern PA and we had the pension of the company. And it was one of those moments where it was like, I'm the lawyer in charge of this portfolio and credit risk. I'm going to destroy the pension of every single person of this company, every retiree, if I screw this up. So a little bit of stress. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know that it was exactly that, but I was the front line. Like there wasn't anybody who knew more about the portfolio and the deals than I did at the company. So it was, yeah, it was, you go through stuff like that and you're like, yeah, whatever, a couple hundred million, it's whatever, that's Tuesday, you know, like after dealing with those kinds of things. Let's talk about how to contract. Obviously, you're incredibly, uh, incredibly active on LinkedIn. Um, How'd you get started? Um, Just just give us an overview of, of what you're doing, what you're offering how you're thinking about the world with this. Yeah. So it started, you know, in a way unexpectedly, because I was a, I'm a mom, I've got, I'm a single mom with four kids on my own. So life was work and kids, work and kids. And that was it up until 2020. And we were found ourselves in the pandemic and I am, you know, working from home as everybody was feeling isolated and, 
I was like, you know, I really need to market my law firm. I had opened up a solo practice and I saw somebody on LinkedIn post a challenge, say post every day for 30 days. And I was like, you know, I don't think I could do that. I probably have about, you know, five or six days in me, but I'll try it. And so I started and I remember maybe it was the second or third day I posted a contract tip. And immediately there was this reaction from the people in my community and they just wanted to talk about it. And it was just small things that lawyers who do this practice every day know, but it provided this great conversation. And then I started doing it every day and the conversations kept going. And it was, it turned out to be this great center point for us to have these discussions online, to really connect with other people who had similar passions for contract drafting and negotiating and all the nuances and the people who found it so fun. Um, I think we found each other on LinkedIn during the pandemic and it's, it, you know, and it served me so well to post a contract tip every day that I just kept going. Um, and so I'm actually, I'm a, I think I'm right around 950 days in a row that I've posted on LinkedIn. That's unbelievable. That's awesome. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. And, you know, I still engage. There's been very few days when I didn't get on LinkedIn myself on one of those days. Um, I have a, a system to post it, but um, now, but I'm always on cause it's, that's where my friends are. Right. Right. So what have you found is, has gotten sort of the most interest? What are people out there most interested in understanding in the contracting space? What I find is people want the nuances. And what I talk about is, you know, if you're a second year lawyer, and you are learning contracts, you have a, a body of knowledge in your head, and you know some basics about contracts. If you're a 20-year lawyer who's been working on contracts that whole time, you have a much broader, more nuanced understanding of contracts. And what I try and do is capture that delta. What do I know that a second year, a fifth year, even a 10th year lawyer might not know um, because I've had these experiences. And those are the things you can't find that anywhere. And so that's what I tried to, to capture. And I'd be working on my deals for my clients and I'd start to write a comment to somebody explaining something. And I'm like, oh, that's a good tip. Because, you know, right. I'm providing an insight to my client about how this works. And, you know, I bet other people would want to hear it, too. So a lot of the things that I think people really want to talk about are those nuances and not the superficial work with your clients, be a good partner. You know, there's so yeah. much of that out in the world. They want, OK, on a risk of loss provision, make sure you do this one, two, three things and that's the level of uh, detail they're looking for, but also not prescriptive. So I'm not a big believer that there's one model clause in the world that everybody should use, one way of drafting. It, to me, that's misleading and, and it borders on dangerous because each provision, there's a million different ways to say it. And it's a contract um, risk tool or a risk management tool. And so there isn't one best way. It's whatever is best for this circumstance that you have this deal, this counterparty, this risk. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I found is I uh, most of most of my career, my my core competency really has been um, commercial contracts. Right, uh, just sort of right out of the gate. That's what I was doing. I've done I've done a bunch. Uh, probably a lot more than I. I 
I really wanted to uh, at the end of the day. Um, but I learned more about the legal terms and drafting of legal terms from drafting business terms that didn't have any sort of background, any normal language that normal quote normal language that one would use for describing the delivery of this particular asset or whatever it may be. And it made me think about the way that I was the way that I was evaluating legal provisions less like, yeah, that looks like how everybody else normally drafts this to wait a minute, I have to think about this in the context of of my business of what the critical deliverables are for my business to get the value out of this relationship. And, and how are we going to resolve disputes in the event there should be one that comes up, right? Uh, and that boilerplate becomes a lot more important. And then obviously, if you've ever litigated a contract you drafted, that that provides a different level of learning experience too. So. Exactly. And, and I think because I was um, out, you know, in law firms for nine years, then in house for 14 years. So that in house experience really changed a lot of how I drafted because first of all, I saw, you know, on the regular day to day stuff that we do, so much of it doesn't matter because right. the chance of severability being an issue in any litigation, I mean, I could see in a big M&A deal maybe, but for the things I was doing, there's no, no way. So right. I learned how to focus my time on the things that would really, really matter because now I'd lived enough disputes and not necessarily litigation level disputes, sure. but the day-to-day -day fighting and disagreements like that's, what we're really trying to manage with our contracts. Of course, the tail risk of a huge dispute, but really it's a tool to help us make sure we get along and that we have a clear, to continue the airline, the clear runway to land if we need to. Yeah, exactly. And, and being able to reduce things to writing, I found is, is, is something that's pretty, uh, pretty meaningful in identifying to the business people where maybe those business people are not seeing eye to eye. Right? Exactly. Um, and they might not want to talk about it. And I'm like, no, this is exactly the moment you talk about it. You don't want to talk about it after you sign. Exactly. Exactly. Let's talk about some best practices. You know, if you're, if you're, let's just call it two to five years, maybe your, your first in-house role. You know a lot of the folks that are, uh, that are listening in on this are first, first time in-house attorneys earlier in their career. What are a couple of key takeaways that, that you could give these folks? Yeah. And, and it's hard because there's so much that you don't know in those early years. You know the law, you went to law school, you've got some basic training. So the big things I say are say everything once. I find that's the most common mistake that I see with new contract drafting folks is they you know, they see all this verbose language in contracts and they think they're supposed to be verbose and it's supposed to be long, but really it's just capturing individual concepts once, just a lot of concepts. So being careful that way, then making sure there's no internal inconsistencies and there's no way to read the contract anyway, other than what you intended. And that gets to the passive tense where a lot of us, when we're not sure and we're not clear, we turn to passive tense because it's easy. You don't have to you don't have to specifically identify who has to do something. And you can just say it should be done. And 
but that's, you know, the worst thing in a contract is to have passive tense and not have clarity around where the obligation sits. So those are probably my top two tips uh, for new lawyers. And then I think the last one I'll give is just to really focus on what it is you're trying to say. Let go of this feeling like you have to make it into a model clause. And I don't know how to write the sentence. I better go spend an hour looking up on some blog or article or law review article what I'm supposed to say. At the end of the day, clarity is is the far and away the most important thing apart from any perfect language. So being clear about what you're trying to do and being clear with your language is um, critical. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And one of the things that I know I I struggled with early in my career was was looking at looking at something and saying, I, I need I need this clause or even this entire agreement to read like a beautiful contract. Right. Uh, use, you know, use big words and try to look like, you know, what you're doing sort of thing. Um, and frequently that was that was more disastrous than it was beneficial. Um, if you can say something in just a few words, eliminate ambiguity. That's that's a win. Like your contract can be the worst reading piece of piece of prose that's out there and be the best contract that anyone's ever going to see. Right. Because it's very clear definitions and and sort of getting out of your own way and think like like trying to understand what's good, especially, you know, when you're coming out of law school or even like looking at a law firm where you have all of these all of these uh, uh, all of these writings in front of you. If it's, you know, the case law that you're reading, it's usually written in a very eloquent, very beautiful way, very nuanced way. Uh, a lot of these model contracts, same thing. Right. Um, and to come in here and, and say something like party A should never do this <laughs> and just have that be one sentence is like is is really strange, you know. So, yeah, uh, well, and I equate it to being, you know, the um, corporate M&A lawyers, the ones in law firms working on financing deals, they're like surgeons. And those of us in the weeds working on commercial, whether it's supply chain or sales, we're like the ER doctors, you know, right. we are triaging, we are making yeah. sure this does this, you know, $10,000 deal doesn't kill the company, but it's unlikely to. And we're trying to focus our, our attention on the things that really needed. And that's where, you know, I'm a huge proponent of risk management as the number one most important tool for managing your contract drafting and negotiating. It's not about making everything beautiful, creating beautiful documents. It's about, am I managing risk appropriately as a resource of the company? Which means I might do a really crappy job on some small contracts because they're so low risk. And that's right. okay. And that's hard to get to as a, as a lawyer. Of course, you have to have a supportive team around you, a supportive manager. But when I work with folks, it's always about, you know, A-level effort for A-level risk, C-level effort for C-level risk. Just get it done and move on so you have time to focus on what matters. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, I you know, I, w I will say at the risk of sounding, you know, sounding a little bit too pedantic, like, it is important to know the rules before you break them too, right? Like, like you had you had the privilege of, of being at a law firm for nine years, I'm sure, working with some really outstanding people at MoFo. Who who really helped develop you and your hard skills 
as an attorney so that now you're you're in a position where you can make you can make that judgment about what what a C-level effort really looks like. Because I can guarantee you, your C-level effort is very, very different than a fifth-year C-level effort, right? Well, and at the end of the day, that's why I created How to Contract. Because nobody was really trying to convey that judgment call that we have to make every single day. When we decide, here's a sentence of one provision, what do I do with it? Do I change these words? Which words do I change? And what if it's this kind of deal? Does it change? And so that's where those model clauses, great, in the state of New York, there's a case that says this, but that doesn't mean everybody in the world should draft their contracts differently just because of one case in one state. You know, it's really about what we've been talking about, that risk management, learning how to make that judgment call, which is so hard to do. And I think that's where I've, a lot of what I do is I try and take all that great training I got and package it in, you know, bite-sized chunks for lawyers and contract managers and business people. Well, it's, it's absolutely awesome. I, I, the content that I've seen from you has just been really, really incredible. It's great that there's such an experienced voice out there to to provide people at really at every level with tips, tricks, and and how tos on on something that for most lawyers, especially in house lawyers, is a pretty big part of the job. So, well, um, and the other part I've been happy to do is I, um, with each contract tip I post on LinkedIn, I have a cartoon that I've created with <laughs> stick figures, and there's some elaborate you know, circumstance, I've got zombies, I've got cows at negotiating tables, just something very silly. And I think what I've heard is people really appreciate that too, because it's bringing fun into the world of contracts, which to me, contracts are so fun, but I know everybody doesn't feel that way. Yeah, exactly. I, I view them as a puzzle or a math problem to be solved. Like, and, and once you get into it, it can be fun. And the negotiation is fun too. And, um, and, and you learn, you learn a lot, you know, I've had the, like you have had the opportunity to go, uh, you know, to go and negotiate contracts, massive, massive agreements with, you know, some of the, some of the leaders in, you know, sports and entertainment and, um, and in gaming and, and in tech, uh, just generally like in SAS, ma- just massive agreements. And, uh, and you learn a little bit from, from everybody and, you know, I think a lot of those people I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to still call, you know, uh, at least at least pleasant colleagues, if not friends. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's that le- constant learning. I mean, I've been doing this 26 plus years. I know a lot of stuff, but the reason I have continued all these 950 days is because I continue to learn. If it was just me posting and then I go away and do my day and I come back the next day and post, I guarantee I would have stopped a long time ago. But what I love is we start these conversations and it's there's no pressure to participate, but then somebody will say, you know what? You know, you've mentioned this thing, but I've had this other experience and then we had a dispute about this and there's just so much sharing going on. And it's this very open environment where we have, you know, new contract managers, managers having discussions with law firm partners about particular issues. And we're all on an equal level being able to have these conversations. So I love the openness, the supportive. It's not, you know, I'm not the soup Nazi that none for you. You did it wrong. Next, you know, move down the line. It's let's learn together. Yeah. Yeah. That, 
that has been a ton of fun and and being able to see like like people especially if you just get lawyer to lawyer like and get the business people off the phone a lot of times having the business people on the phone i like i'm a huge proponent of having that i think that can that can make a deal go so much faster uh in many ways but when you're talking about some nuances around things that are more traditionally legal issues uh things like remedies liability indemnification uh even breach provisions remedy provisions um like that kind of stuff that inherently has a business impact but is not necessarily something that the that the non-business non-lawyers are thinking about if you can get on the phone with just with just counsel and say explain to me explain to me what like what you're trying to protect against explain to me an aspect of your business that it seems like I don't get because I'm proposing something here that sounds like it's perfectly reasonable and you're really digging in your your heels and I'm also okay for you to say this is a point I'm really passionate about and I like I just I have internal pressures that I need to I need to get a win on this in this way and it's like all right, cool. Like, uh, uh, to be perfectly honest, depending on what it is, if someone tells me like, listen, I just, I just need a win on this one. Like, it'll really help me internally and be like, yeah, sure. Why, like, why not? Like, get a win, get a win. And let's, and then let's figure out how to draft around whatever, you know, whatever other issue uh, that, you know, maybe neither of us, neither of us are feeling pressure on, but we know we got to resolve the right way. Yeah, and I like to think of it, I call it negotiation currency, and think of it like a budget, because uh, everybody understands budgets, and you only have so much money, and some people have a lot of money, those are the ones with the bargaining power, some people right. have a little bit of money, and so right. every negotiation, we go in with whatever budget we come to the table with, and in some cases, I'm going to spend my entire budget on a limit of liability or an indemnity. In other times, I'm not going to worry about those. I'm going to focus on payment and termination and service levels. So deciding how you're going to spend your negotiating budget, especially vis-a-vis -vis the other side, because if I have a ton of budget and we don't need them and, you know, not that I'm going to be rude about it, but it, it adjusts how I approach the deal because I'm not going to be as worried about needing some of these provisions. I don't have to save up all yeah. my negotiating budget for one thing, I can, when I have the, the bigger budget, I can, you know, expect more wins. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I know, I know we just got a couple more, a uh, couple more questions in. Alyssa, you want to, you want to kick us off? Yes. Um, all right. So what are some contract blind spots that I should watch out for as a first time in-house lawyer? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I'd say is why. Why does somebody in your team need this tool, need this service, um, need this particular kind of transaction? And that was something I didn't appreciate. I just treated each contract, oh, it's a service agreement. Okay, I'll do my standard service agreement markup. Oh, it's a SaaS agreement. I'll do my standard markup. And what I learned was the why, meaning 
everything about this deal, this tool, this need is so critical to understand to be able to adjust the contract terms. So when I started out, I don't think I asked enough questions. I don't think I understood the product and the business as much. I was so busy studying indemnity and licensing concepts yeah. and complex things like that, where really, you know, to me, those are important, but almost secondary to understanding the the need. And so asking why, never just to let somebody say, oh, we need a software license agreement. Can you send me a form? It's always got to be followed up with why. What is the use? What's your, what are you going to do with it? And that way we can make sure we do our jobs as in-house counsel. Nice. Um, all right. This is a good one. What's the right and wrong way to say no during negotiations? Yeah, no, I love this because, and I'll say this like I say a lot of things with contracts, there is no one way to do things. You know, everybody's personal style is different. I tend to be chit chatty and friendly and nice. So how I say no is going to be some different from somebody who's maybe a quieter, you know, more um, a quieter person who doesn't talk as much or doesn't feel as comfortable kind of in a situation. So at least when I have to say no, I typically try and it depends on the the, the, in how much the other side wants it. If I know this is the thing that they want more than anything in the world, and I'm going to say no, then I'm going to soften it. And I'm going to deliver that message slowly um, over time, as opposed to hitting them on the head with it. I'm going to deliver it in a way that offers them face saving. Um, I'm going to say, you know, yeah, that's such a good point. Let's think about that a little bit more. Can you tell me more about why? What can, you know, and I kind of expand the conversation so it's not just no, it's it looks like that's going to be a really hard one for us, you know, to give. Let and so I just kind of smoothly say no. Sometimes I have to just say no, no, you know, straight out, simple, whatever. But most of the times I find it's there's a human reaction to be to, being told no that um, is it isn't the same when you soften the delivery and deliver it a little bit more in stages. So that's to me just saying no hardcore to something that's really important to them in front of everybody is the wrong way in most situations. And the right way to me is softening it. It's also to me really important. I don't say big no's early in the relationship, even if that relationship is a phone call or a series of phone calls. I, if there's a really contentious point and I know we're going to butt heads, I like to defer those to later. And I like to find a bunch of joint wins, all these provisions that I can say yes to. I actually bend over backwards trying to give them things in the contract before I get to that no. Um, so those are some of my techniques for saying no. Nice. That's great. Um, all right. What is the number one redlining tip that you give? I think the biggest thing is to be very careful with the tone of the comments. This can make or break the negotiation. I've seen it time and time again, because at the end of the day, most changes, especially if you're a lawyer working in this practice area, you know what the other side's going to say and why they're going to say it. You know, I say the same thing when I'm on the other side of the deal. So I know, I know why you're asking. I know all that stuff. I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but in most cases we know. So 
if you ask nicely, if you say it simply, if you don't say it in a condescending way, you're going to create more openness with the other side. Um, but if you say, and I have to catch myself because when I'm negotiating or when I'm doing my redlining, I get in this zone of like, what an idiot. Doesn't he know anything? He should have done it this way. And in my head, that's what I'm thinking. And so sometimes I even write that comment, not, I don't say the idiot part, but I'll be like, obviously this is how this should be. And everybody knows this is how we do this or something like that. And then I found, a, I have a practice. I never send out comments, drafts with my initial comments, I always go back through and soften them because it's hard to soften in the moment that you're typing and you're thinking and you're processing. And so then I go back and say, you raise a great point. Yeah, this may be, maybe we should discuss this on our next call, you know, or whatever it is that's super nice and friendly. Um, and you got to convey information sometimes, especially with deals that are just going to be uh, red lines back and forth. Um, with no in-person conversation. So, but even then it's, it's even more important to keep that tone friendly, supportive, respectful. Um, and, and that is such a priority and should be for everyone. Great. Um, all right, we'll do one more. Any advice on how to approach a confusing commercial contract? Yeah, this is, I see this a lot because I do a lot of commercial, you know, whether it's supply chain or other deals and it doesn't make sense. I'm like reading it. It's like a, you know, a mutant animal that's been put together, cut from all these different places. And so what I start with is the services, who, or the goods, who is going to do what, for when, for whom, what, by when, and how. So I kind of get a sense of who is doing, how the parties are related based on the transaction going back and forth. And then, because I tend to do a lot with goods and services that have a technology element to them, I focus on the on the IP and the intellectual property. And I say, okay, we're going to sell you this widget. We're going to make and sell you this widget. Well, who's going to design it? Who's going to manufacture it? Who's going to distribute it? And who's going to maintain it? And those answers will dictate a very different agreement than one. So if the seller is doing all those things and I'm just a consumer showing up and paying money and taking a widget, that's one deal. But if I'm doing that as the customer and the vendor is only doing one little piece of it, maybe the design, and that's it. Well, that's a very different kind of contract. So the IP and the basic goods and services and really diving into what the language says on those. And then that helps you see clearer what this deal is all about. Nice. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was it was awesome to sit down and have the conversation with you here. And um, and for for those of you who are watching or listening, please follow us, like us, subscribe on all the socials, and uh, we'll see you next time.